This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we talk with Peggy Shin, the author of a new book, World Class, The Making of the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Ski Team. Shin's book was released in February, a few days before Shin herself jetted off to Pyeongchang, South Korea to cover the Olympics. Not one to miss a good show, Shin was able to see the U.S. ski team come full circle as Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall won gold in the Olympic team sprint. Shin's book, World Class, The Making of the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Ski Team, is our primary topic of discussion. From the roots of the women's team when Marty Hall and John Caldwell pulled the strings to the modern World Cup, where the U.S. women's team has become a force, Shin gives us a glimpse into how the women's program went from deep grassroots to Olympic gold. Our interview with Chin went down after three weeks in Korea when admittedly, faster skiers Gabby Naranya and I, as well as Shin, were feeling brain dead. So pardon any giddiness or digressions. We're sitting here in the main press center here in Pyeongchang. This is me, Jason, and we got Gabby. Here I am. And can you introduce yourself, please? I'm Peggy Shin. I'm, I write for TeamUSA.org, and I just wrote a book on the women's cross-country ski team. And what's the name of that book? It is called World Class, The Making of the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Ski Team. Where can people get this? People can order it on Amazon, or they can order it, ask their local bookshop. I always try to push local bookshops yeah. um, to order it. Or you can go to the University Press of New England website, which is upne, U-P-N-E, dot com, and order it there. Yeah, so where are you from? And just a little bit of, before we get into the details of the book, um, you know, just how you're involved with skiing and how you actually really kind of developed a passion for exploring this woman's team. Okay, so I currently live in Rutland, Vermont, but I was raised in northern Vermont in Lindenville. Um, I have to say, though, that I'm, I was not born in Vermont. I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, and we moved to Vermont when I was three. My mom is a seventh-generation Vermonter, and I'm an eighth-generation Vermonter. My great-great-great-great-great-grandfather settled East Hardwick, came to Vermont before Vermont was a state. Wow. So we, my dad took a job at Linden State College when I was three. He was an English professor. And we moved to Lindenville. And I, my mom grew up skiing because she was raised in Cabot, Vermont. She was one of the early people hiking up Mount Mansfield. So, you know, as soon as I could walk, of course, I was, my mom put me on skis in the backyard. So I just grew up skiing. And I grew up alpine skiing. Cross country as a kid, I didn't like it because I didn't like breathing hard. Um, and the first time I went out, they, like didn't, a good normal kid. Yeah. they didn't give me any ski poles. When I, my first time cross-country skiing, they gave me no ski poles. And I'm trying to walk, get up a hill with no ski poles. Like, that was not a nice thing to do. Um, but I discovered cross-country skiing in high school when I was trying to stay fit for rowing. I went to prep school in New Hampshire. Um, so I cross-country ski in the winter. And then I became a bike racer. It was cross-country skiing in the winter to stay fit for that. Um, so I have had a kind of a convoluted career. I, I got sidetracked into science, so I have this master's degree in engineering, but I really always wanted to write, but my sister told me I couldn't write because that was what she did, and she's older. So finally, when I was 32 years old, I, my husband said, why don't you write? Why don't you quit this, what you're doing, and move back to Vermont? I was in Colorado at the time. We'll get married, and you can write. 
So I moved back to Vermont, and the Rutland Herald needed a ski writer. So I thought, well, this is better than making cookies and bonbons in, the, in a farmhouse in Vermont all winter. So that started in 1997. And as part of that, I had to cover college, the college carnival circuit. And the college carnivals are half alpine, half Nordic. So I, you know, I liked covering the alpine skiers, but I loved covering the Nordic, the cross-country skiers, because nobody gives them any press. And I loved getting to know them, and I loved getting to know, it was the early 2000s, so the, the Europeans were still doing much better than the Americans. So I got to watch that progression of the American athletes like Glenn Randall finally like you know winning NCAAs and how big of a deal that was and then when Sophie was part of the Dartmouth UVM podium sweep in 2012 I mean I, I, I got to witness all of that so when these women like Sophie and Ida and Rosie particularly because they were on the Dartmouth team when they started skiing World Cups and started doing well because I'd followed them from when they were little kids. It was like, how is this happening? Um, so there was that, that first relay in the Czech Republic in 2012, February 2012, when they finished fifth. And that, I remember waking up in the morning and seeing that and going, whoa, what just happened? Did they, like, find the, the greatest wax ever? You know, what happened? What, was the, what caused that? And I called them up, and each one of them credited teamwork. And that blew me away because as a kid growing up in Lindenville and being on the Linden Institute cross-country running team and track team and ski team and then going to prep school and being on those teams, every team I had been on, we tore each other apart. We, there was a coach who was only interested in the top skier or the top rower. Um, the rest of us were sort of forgotten about. Um, we, You were jealous of your competitors. You weren't encouraged to to learn from them and the, the the diva or the best person on the team was sort of pulled aside on their own little special training program so I couldn't fathom that teamwork would help anybody to me teamwork I mean I shied away from teams I trained with men on my own because that made me a better athlete and I wasn't with a bunch of women who were trying to claw my eyes out so the fact that these women were crediting teamwork I thought there was more of a story there so that sort of is, is a long story of how the book came to be Okay, so the book in particular, uh, tell us again what the title is. World Class, The Making of the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Ski Team. Okay, so it sounds like you start the book off with kind of a hallmark relay in 2012. Can, can you talk a little bit about that and why that's notable? Okay, so from this relay in February 2012 in the Czech Republic where they finished fifth. So the next season in November 2012, so what is that, seven months later, eight months later? They're in the first or second World Cup of the year. It's in Galavari. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Sweden. That sounded good. Um, and there's a relay. And they fielded a team. They were kind of excited because they'd finished fifth, and maybe they could finish fifth again. And if you listen to the Eurosport um, telecast of that relay on YouTube, it's hilarious because the Eurosport guys are like, oh, it'll be a fantastic result if they finish in the top five, these Americans. And... You watch them, and like Holly is the first, Holly Brooks is the first, is the leadoff leg, and she crosses the line in eighth, and she tags off to, who was the second? Gosh, well. It wasn't, it wasn't Ida. Ida couldn't do it, and it was Liz, and maybe it was Keegan. We can. It was Keegan. We can um, look that up, too. And Keegan, I should, I wrote about it, I should remember, but I'm 
kind of brain dead right now. So this, this is uh, yeah, this is where I have our disclaimer. We've I've been here three weeks. You've been here three weeks. Three weeks. Two weeks. We're toast. Yes, I can't remember. Okay. Anything? I can't remember my birth date. I, I don't know what date <laughs> is back home. <laughs> It's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. No, it's yesterday back home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just checked in for my flight that says it's today. I keep double checking. I need to do that. So, should I? Do you want to look that up or? No, it's Keegan. Okay. So she hands off to Keegan, and Keegan pulls them up to the Norwegians and the Swedes who are off the front. And then you see Liz. She tags off to Liz in the first freestyle leg, and Liz just skis like she's possessed. And she is just a couple seconds behind Norway. It's like, oh my gosh, they're going to finish on the podium. And then she tags off to Jesse. And Jesse was passed by one of the, oh, by Kala, by Charlotte Kala, which, you know, no surprise. And then she gets passed by another Norwegian. But Jesse thinks to herself, I'm, I can lose silver, but I'm not losing a medal for this team. So she just skis out of her mind, and they finish third. So that's how I started the book, because here's this women's relay. It's four Americans, so it's not just Keegan, who's been finishing on the World Cup podium for years, but it's four Americans who have finished on a World Cup podium. It was like the Norwegians winning the World Series or beating the Red Sox. And they're women. And they're women. So, I mean, I I don't want to make, you know, maybe in this time I shouldn't make a big deal about that, but it seems like a common thread in your book is that they represent kind of post-Title IX, maybe, or women's empowerment. I mean, they, they prior to Keegan, and even with Keegan, uh, and we'll get to that, but Keegan was alone on the team for a long time, or right. just didn't have any peers. Right, right. Sorry. Well, I think, I mean, how many years has it been since Title IX? I mean, this is advanced it's math for our tired no. brains. Um, 1972, yeah. so... 46 years since Title IX. Um, And I think, sadly, it's taken that long for us to start seeing the effects of improved opportunities for women in sports in the U.S. But I think it's a major societal change um, in the perception of women. Like, when I was growing up, my mother did not think it was becoming of a woman to be athletic. You could be an, an active child. You could ski. But you couldn't sweat. To sweat was was unbecoming. And what man would want to marry a sweating woman? So I think it's now become acceptable for women to be strong and muscular. And you're not perceived as either a bitch or automatically a lesbian. You know, nothing wrong with that. But if you were athletic when I was growing up, you were people immediately assumed you were a lesbian. Um, and it's also become possible for women to make a career out of sports and we said you know in the past previous century men could do it they could be football players they could be baseball players but you didn't see a lot of women being making a living from being an athlete we were, we were expected to go to college and get married or, or get married as soon as we could and have children what did what did you learn through the athletes uh that you interviewed about what that relay podium did to them in terms of confidence or their sort of presence and possibilities on the World Cup? I think it really gave them belief. And in talking to them and in researching the book, I really realized the importance of belief in being an athlete. And, you know, you look at world-class athletes, they're probably all just about the same strength, 
same about same in you know aerobic capacity. But I think what separates the podium people at the front of the pack from the back are the ones who really believe they belong. So I think that relay proved to these women that they belong at the front of the World Cup. But I also think that Keegan, already having been successful, so successful on the World Cup, by then she was, that was her first sprint globe, I think, was 2012. She won three in a row, I think, 2012, 13, and 14. And so she was already the best in the world. And and I think you see a lot, a lot of times women who are that, or athletes who are that good, then separate themselves, they get their own coaches, their own entourages, and they go off and train on their own. But Keegan stayed with his team. So the women were training with her. And if you're out doing a two-hour, three-hour run, a roller ski with Keegan, and you think, wow, I can keep up with her on, you know, on this run or this whatever they're doing, then Therefore, by the associative property, if I can keep up with her here, I can keep up with her in a race. She's the best in the world, so I can keep up with the best in the world. So I think that really, and just Keegan's presence and who she was, really gave these women instilled a lot of belief. Sounds like the book goes into uh, a little bit of history about how women's sport, and specifically cross-country, women in cross-country at an elite level, um, evolved in the U.S. Who were some of the personalities that helped uplift uh, women in the sport? So um, I, I know listeners of Faster Skier are, are probably pretty attuned to the history of the sport, but I didn't realize like until I started researching this, I, I guess I knew it, but I didn't really realize it, that women were allowed to compete in the Olympics starting in 1952 in cross-country skiing, but the U.S. did not field a team until 1972. So here we are, this nation that's supposed to be so cutting edge, yet we're 20 years behind. So from talking to some of the, um, you know, the, the icons in the sport, like John Caldwell and Marty Hall, um, in the, it was the 1960s, and John had three sons and a daughter, and his daughter was skiing at Putney, and he thought it was ridiculous that there were no women competing at the World Championships in the 60s, so he um, thought it was important to get a women's team together, so he started pulling that together along with Marty Hall. Marty was the first coach of the women's team. They fielded a a world championship team in 1970 and then an Olympic team in 1972, and it was fascinating talking to Trina Hosmer um, about her experiences, you know, competing and making that team and, you know, going over to the Czech Republic and competing in the first world championships and being, like, pushed off the trail by the Bulgarian woman who you know, was so much bigger and stronger than she was. Um, and Allison Owen Bradley was fascinating talking to her. She was a junior in 1966 or 67, um, had been training with the boys in, in Washington, and they all qualified for junior nationals, so she just went. And there was no field for girls, so they, there was this big to-do about whether she was going to be allowed to compete. And they agreed to let her compete, but they put an ambulance on the finish line in case she succumbed to the effort. <coughs> <laughs> oh I mean, my gosh. perhaps the ambulance was there in case other people succumbed to the effort but it was just seemed wow and so was she from the the metau or do you she's know she's from, from yeah uh the metau valley okay yeah. and she lives i believe in sun valley now in ketchum okay she was awesome to talk to i mean all these women were so great to talk to i wish i could have talked to them all uh, wow because you think 72 it's like post that, is that right is that yeah. do I have my date right yeah it's like Right when things were just in the heart of political activism. Right. Right. 
Right. And women, there was the whole, you know, freedom movement. And yeah. It's in my lifetime. I was born in 63. So, and I was raised to think I could do anything I wanted to do. I could ski in the backyard. Right. I could go to any college I wanted to. Yet, we didn't realize the hurdles that we were having to overcome. Yeah. I guess Haight-Ashbury is a long way from, like, uh-huh. wooded ski trails. Right. Okay. Um, what did you learn it's interesting because we're talking about men who are empowering girls and women. Um, you know, what specifically, why those individuals? I mean, it sounds like John had daughters in the game. Um, John had daughters in the game. I actually don't know. I, I should have asked Marty Hall why he was interested in coaching a women's team. He was fresh out of the University of New Hampshire, and he had a degree in physical education. He was fascinated by coaching, and he had all these good ideas. And I think had he been able to continue with his good ideas and his performance programs, a lot of what he was doing was cutting edge. And, you know, it's it's not cutting edge now, but it was very cutting edge then. I think the team would have really started to excel um, a lot sooner, but budget, the budget was cut um, in the late seventies and Marty was, you know, let go and the, the program kind of plummeted in, into the dark ages. Keegan, it sounds like Keegan is a real, uh, pivotal character in your book. Yes. And she's been a pivotal character here in Pyeongchang elected to the IOC athletes commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just saw her on the television with her pink hair being sworn in, taking her Olympic oath. It sounds like, or, didn't sound like it was. Yeah, in, yeah. in dress clothes. I've never seen Keegan she in did, dress she clothes. Had dream, she had jeans on. I did oh, she see did? that. I think she had <laughs> jeans on. Um, so talk a little bit about her. I mean, she will clearly go down as probably, if not the pivotal athlete in turning this team into an excess, a successful enterprise. So I think Keegan is pivotal because of who she is as a person and where she was raised and her family. Um, I spent a week up in Anchorage, and she was raised in a very large family with a lot of um, cousins around. So she was used to being in big groups, and she she likes being in big groups. And when she um, you know, was a kid in Anchorage, she was always on team. She was on the soccer team. She was on the, you know, she was skiing. She was running. She wanted to be a Division One cross-country um, or Division One runner, cross-country and track. Um, and then in high school, she became involved with the Nordic ski team to stay involved, to stay fit for running and then realized she loved skiing more. But in Anchorage, the, the teams, the high school team was like 120 kids. It wasn't like 10 kids. So she's always been a big team person. She likes the team, you know, the rah-rah teamness, the cheering, the support, the camaraderie. So she had that experience and she had her family's experience of competing with her family and she's got these awesome genes, you know, from her aunt and uncle and her mom was the youngest is remains the youngest winner of the Fairbanks Marathon. So she had this awesome she had a lot of the right package Genetic coming together. Potential was there. Yes. And she just, she's very determined and very dogged. And she decided in 1998 that she wanted to be, she learned that Bill Koch was the only medal in cross-country skiing for the United States. And she wanted to win the first medal for the women because she thought women needed a medal in cross-country skiing. So she set out a 10-year plan and nothing was going to deter her from that 10-year plan. And I asked her, I've asked her, I asked her three times over the course of eight months, what her most trying time was 
in the past 20 years. It was the past 18 years at that point. And I expected her to say after Sochi when she didn't medal. Um, and she said it was in 2005 when the U.S. ski team cut all funding for women's Nordic skiing. And she thought that that was the end of her dream. But because of the town of Anchorage, it's, it's a city that, that feels like a small town. And they really rally behind their people. And she got a bunch of sponsors and people that kept her going. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I thought, I'm like, boy, I mean, I would love to be, I, I'm not living in Anchorage, but I would love to be a fly on the wall in Anchorage when she comes home with that medal. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, it's going to be a big deal. Big parade. Yeah, and Keegan Street or whatever will be Keegan Randall Elementary School. Right. Ooh. Oh, really? I don't, well, not immediately, but I imagine, I mean, that's a, it's a, yeah, in a community like that, like you say, I mean, there are 600, I don't know, they're a long way from the mainland U.S. Yeah. And their people are their people. Right, right. And they, you know, they have Tuesday night race series, and it's not like, you know, in my town where five people show up. It's like, whoa, there's 100 people here every Tuesday night, and they ski and they go have beer. And We've all, you know, interviewed and talked to Keegan covering Nordic Sport and mm-hmm. you writing a book. Um, and... You know, there's been a lot of, she got a lot of media attention, I'd say, in the middle part of her career in particular, because she was winning Globes, and she was the face of the team. And now, obviously, there's, that media attention could be dispersed a bit. There's there's Sadie, there's Jesse, there's Sophie, there's Rosie, there's Ida. Right. You can go on. I'm like, am yeah. I missing anybody? I mean, there's a lot of personalities and real star athletes there. And pardon me if I missed anybody. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think, yeah, there's the main, the yeah. core seven, and then Holly, who yep. retired and has Shout out twins to Holly. now. And her husband, who actually left a positive yeah. comment for Gabby and I <laughs> on the website. Yeah, thanks, Gabby. thanks, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> so, that said, um, breaking through to, like, who Keegan is, right, I, I've felt like, I'm like, boy, all right, I'm getting... You know, she's coming through the mix zone or I've called her up on the phone and I'm getting a response. And I'm like, boy, I don't feel like I've cracked the shell. And I felt like I got a little bit of a glimpse. We did a podcast interview with her a day or two after she won the medal. And she clearly was like weight had been lifted off her shoulders and a little more effervescent. Threw me the medal. Yeah, she <laughs> kind of threw the medal at Gabby. Nice catch. But like who, who is Keegan? You know, so I had the opportunity to talk to her mom and her dad and her aunt Betsy um, and her friends. And um, yeah, Keegan was was the toughest nut to crack because she's she does put on that. And maybe it's from years of media attention. She does put on that very professional persona. And I always did kind of want a glimpse behind the curtain to see who Keegan really is. But pretty much who you see is who you get. She's very organized. She's very business. She could be very businesslike. Um, but she also has this fun side to her. Like she and Tara Hamilton, who's Tara Masters now, used to dance. I just heard the song a few minutes ago that, that um, I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. <laughs> Do you know that song, Gabby? The, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so they used to crank that before high school ski races. And they'd, you know be all pinked up and whatever so you so keegan maybe had a little bit more jesse it has a little bit more jesse in her than we've seen you know with keegan as the professional on the world cup circuit um but her dad i sat down with her dad one morning and i thought okay this is gonna be a half hour interview 
oh my God, like two hours later, I'm still sitting there and he's telling me just story after story, but it kind of unfolded, peeled the onion of who Keegan is and who inspired her. And, um, but pretty much who you, I think who you see with Keegan is who you get. Okay. So I asked Keegan this, you know, and it sounded like Wickham had established a protocol of a two-way flow of information. Here's who we're thinking about being on the team, how do you, and, and athletes in turn pitching them and saying how they're feeling and being honest about their prospects and, and, and you know, how, how they might ski in that event. And, you know, I was like, Keegan, what's your intangible? Like, what is your intangible as an athlete? Um, but I'm curious, you know, what would be your perception after researching this book and having a whole chapter on Keegan? What is her intangible in your eyes about? I don't understand what you mean by her intangible. Well, people talk about athletes just have this intangible gift or, or drive or whatever it is. They bring something to a cohort or a team that no okay. one else can bring. Okay. Yeah. And it's not simply okay. just physical capacity. Or maybe it is, but I'm just saying, like, right. they bring something that, and maybe Keegan brought that the other night. And another team member who might be equally as fast doesn't bring that specific intangible. Does that make sense? I, yes. So I think Keegan brings 20 years of, damn it, I set out 20 years ago with a 10-year plan to win an Olympic medal. And now it's 20 years later and I don't have an Olympic medal. I've got a son. I really want to spend time with my son and my family. And I want to go to, to the next chapter of my life. And I want this to end the way I intended it to end and I you could see that the last time she charged up the wall and she was starting to fall back and we're like oh no and she just there was some she kicked something in it was that extra gear and I think I think it was that it was the 20 years of I set out to do this and damn it I'm gonna prove myself right yeah that was amazing like this where we were all watching the race you could see that head wall and it's true I mean you could see it in Jesse you could see it in Keegan you thought oh gosh they're gonna fall I mean that's a steep yeah burly climb that just gets steeper except keegan wouldn't say damn it i said damn it <laughs> yeah i don't think yeah. i've ever gosh heard. darn it yeah there you go yeah, yeah. i wouldn't i would have said something worse but yeah, yeah. They, it was amazing to see them just latch on yeah um okay then there's this other guy who wears this red Sox hat all across europe matt wickham uh what did you learn about matt i mean there's a lot of and I mean this with, with respect. I mean, Matt pays a lot of lip service to the concept of team, as, as do all the athletes. Mm-hmm. Whether it's truly like that or not, that's what they're putting forward to the media. Um, talk a little bit about Matt and what he you know, brought to this, uh, to this team, whether not just Keegan, now you've got a bunch of other personalities. Oh, and Liz. I don't know if I mentioned Liz, Liz in that right. list of skiers. Right. We're huge Lids fans here, yes. actually. <laughs> she's always been, you know. Yeah, she's fun. great. Yeah. So, um, you know, you have to be a personality manager. Yes. So, Matt, I. Well, first of all, anybody, you guys, when you meet Matt, he talks to you as if he's known you his entire life and you are his best friend, which is an unusual quality, I think. Um, but so Matt is another key person on this team. And I learned a lot about Matt by talking to his first coach, um, a man named Ed Hamill down in Western Mass. Um, and you have to know Matt, 
I mean, he's the, he's this great guy. He could be in GQ magazine now. But wow, as a kid, he was. And I have I because I was I was a kid with glasses and braces and a total geek. He was a quiet geeky kid and if you see some of his really? he posted a picture on Facebook where he's got the mullet you know and the big hair and the really yeah pull that up let's google oh I'm so dying to get that photo quiet socially awkward kid and I talked to his best friend who's also named Matt and he was like yeah he was just this kid who you know we were the geeks we were the kids we were not the cool people so Matt gets involved with this Bill Koch program that the Hamels Ed and Mary Hamill have started And Ed Hamill, um, I don't, he just had it in his mind that he wasn't just going to coach skiing. He was going to have this sort of kids program where every weekend it was some adventure. And it was an adventure that they all had to get through together. And whether it was like running the length of the Holyoke Range and figuring out how to get across the Connecticut River without using a bridge or, you know, running up this mountain, you know, going straight up this cliff, you, you have to figure out how to get not just yourself up there, but everybody on the team, including the little kids. So Matt grew up with this idea that it's not just you, it's you helping everybody else coming along. Um, so he was a pretty good high school cross-country ski racer, and then he went to Stratton Mountain School for a year in the Middlebury and became the, the team captain up there. And I think he just, he sort of started coming out of his shell, and I maybe just for maturity, and he started talking to people more. Um, and developed into an amazing coach. And I think he is such a good coach because he is his personality. He grew up with a, he has a sister and a brother. So he's, I think he's a middle kid. So you just have to learn how to get along with people and how to work as a team. Middle kid. Yeah. That's a huge, I mean, I'm married to I a middle child. I think he's a middle kid. I'll have to check Well, that. let's pretend he is. But I think there's a lot of merit to that hypothesis. No, the middle kid, they're like diplomats. They are. So without Matt, does any of this happen? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, Chris Grover has a lot of the similar qualities. They're both very humble, quiet, intelligent, introspective men. Um, But I think that, that when they decided in 2011 to focus specifically on a women's team and putting Matt as the head of that, I think that was key because you pull these women apart, you make them make them into a team, not just the whole greater team with the men, even though the men are part of it too. But yeah, that's a good question. I think I think Matt is key. You need a personality like Matt. Yeah, team that's crush? a team. What? <laughs> Sorry, just no, no. What was that? <laughs> team crush? Yeah. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, like a crush is like real? <laughs> yeah, you know. Like Matt. Matt, you mean? Yeah, he's a good-looking dude. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, imagine him with a mullet. And well, I actually hair. was just about to say that. The 1090 or the business in the front party in the back, Matt, from Western yeah. Mass. Yeah. In all honesty, yeah. when you were describing exactly. that, I was like, dudes who have Kind of geeky, you know, smart enough to go to Middlebury. The, the, the few that I knew oh. that had mullets, they seem to be a little more, you got to be a little confident to rock that. Maybe, or you're just trying to fit in. Maybe, yeah. or you're clueless. <laughs> And I did not know this until this Olympics Sorry, when We're just somebody, his, his prom date, posted this picture on Facebook. And he's got on a tuxedo where he's cut the sleeves off. Oh, wow. And he's like how old? Is he late 30s? He's, yeah, late 30s. Okay. Maybe I'll call him up and get the backstory for to add on to this one. Okay. 
Um, and more recently, I mean, all of this obviously blends into more recent history and tons of media attention. And I would assert that, you know, sometimes people say, well, faster skier projects the pressure or the general ski community projects the pressure about getting medals. But I do feel like, um, and I talked to, uh, gosh, see, I can't even remember. I know, <laughs> like I, know. I just spoke to him. Who'd we interview? TK. TK. Tom Kelly. We talked to Tom <laughs> Kelly. Um, we did a long interview, which will be posted at some point. Uh, you know, we talked about that, that tension between the U.S. ski team overhyping and putting pressure on these athletes and the reality of the competition. And so I remember you were in Lati mm-hmm. covering the team mm-hmm. and still working on your book, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on paper... You looked at it, and I think up to that time, they hadn't placed better than fourth in maybe a year, I think. In the relay? Yeah, in the yeah, relay. Yeah, and that was their fourth, their third, fourth place finish at a world championship in the relay. At Lottie. At Lottie, yeah. Yeah, and so I remember, you know, looking at the, the statistics prior to the race, I'm like, wow, I mean, they'll be, it'll be a good day if they can get fourth. Right. And I think talking to Chris Grover at the time... And I forget if this was before or after, but I'm thinking it was after the race. Um, that statistically, yeah, fourth was probably Pretty optimistic. Good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like, what was your sense coming into Lati and then coming out of Lati about you know the pressure put on them and who was putting the pressure on them and the realistic or how that might actually realistically play out? Well, I think. I think, you know, they all said that they, and Matt particularly has said this over and over again, that they didn't need the medal. Like, they're proud enough of what they've created that they didn't need the medal. But I think, you know, they they can feel that internally, but it's really nice to be validated by that medal. Um, So I think they really wanted the validation or maybe we wanted the validation for them. It's hard to decide, but I remember talking to Liz after the relay and, you know, I expected them to be a little devastated and Liz was like, you know what, this, no, this fourth was great. And we don't, I don't need a medal to show that what I've done in the past 20 years of my life is worth it. Like what we've created on this team is enough of a gold medal for me. And and I started looking around at the other teams in the relay. Like the Canadians came through, they had ribbons in their hair. Yeah, they were pretty The Swedes came through, they had flag tattoos on their cheeks. Um, you, so you could see the impact that the American women have had on the World Cup field, the Women's World Cup field. And I think at that point, they were taking a lot of pride in that. Um, and I was hoping in Lati that they would medal in the relay. But as you said, I think fourth was was pretty realistic they needed a perfect day at that point to to win a medal and I think they've come up another little bit of the step from that um coming to the Olympics I think it was the same thing I think the media was putting a lot of pressure on them um our perception like we we as media needed a good story we need like oh biathlon's never medaled um U.S. women's cross country has never medaled we need this story because we need something fresh to write about but um yeah it is a great story but I think they would have been content leaving here if Jesse had never done anything better than fifth in skiathlon. Yeah. I think they would have left here content with like, wow, we're really improving. I but agree. that's just my perception. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think I asked that question in the press conference. I'm like, 
boy, were you feeling pressure? Because you, I, I think to that point, when they won the gold, she already had three-fifths and a sixth. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Which is which outstanding. Is, right, right. You know, it's in particular, it's outstanding when you look at the, you know, maybe the only name that's missing is a Yohog right. serving right. Uh, a doping violation. Right. So, I mean, it's... They was the heavy hitters deal. out there, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that's you know, coming into the games, and I have a, I have a friend who's the, he's, now he worked at the Wall, Matt Futterman. He worked at the Wall Street, you know Matt. Yeah, so Matt was a writer for the sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal for a long time. Now he's a deputy sports editor for the Times, which has done awesome coverage here. Over you know over the course of the games, and I know he has a he just has always been in, in interested in endurance sport in mm-hmm. particular. You know he's really enjoyed covering the cross country the U.S. cross country team. Um, but you know, in talking to a lot of the mainstream journalists here, it's like everyone was just waiting. You know, it's like the medal story was they were all pre written, right? And w- they were just every night I'd see them there, and they'd kind of look over and be like, ah, oh, right. What do we do with that draft? Right. And yep. I had to do the same thing because I have to have my breaking newses. Um, right. And you just, I mean, as, again, it was the press. It was us needing a story that would get clicks, that would get, would get eyeballs. And a story about Jesse finishing fifth in a skiathlon is a huge deal. But is, yeah. not if you're a middle-aged mom in Manhattan who, you know, doesn't know anything about cross-country skiing. But, um, you know, the first medal ever in cross-country skiing is a big deal. So I think we needed that for our readership. Yeah, and that's such an interesting tension. I mean, I know we're getting a little bit off topic, but that, yeah. for me, that's always like faster skier people, I'm hoping, get the fact that the metal doesn't really, I mean, I guess it validates, but with, even without the metal, I don't think yeah. it's any less of a, yeah. an accomplishment yeah. what's happened, even for the guys. Yeah. I mean, Scott Patterson's 11th yesterday, yeah. best yeah. since Bill Koch. Yeah. That's amazing. And Simi and Eric, I mean, yeah. in, in reality, they are like, they are in the hunt. Yes, they you know? are. Yep. Um, okay. So a couple of things that, um, you know, what did you learn about? the obstacles that have or have been present and may still be present for young girls and women uh, in playing sport. Like, what did you learn about the obstacles that might be out there that you maybe weren't aware of prior to writing the book? Well, I learned there were a lot of obstacles when I was a kid in high school in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I'd like to think that we've overcome some of those obstacles. Like, I didn't have... There were mostly male coaches back then. Um, and I think men were, there were the coaches who were used to coaching men. And, and I, I mean, I, when I was in college, most of my fr- close friends were men. And, and um, so I didn't really think there was much difference between men and women. But I've come to realize that there's a big difference between how you coach men and how you coach women and how, how women respond best to what kind of coaching or what kind of feedback we respond best to. Where men seem to be a little bit more, you can kind of, not taunt men, but men seem to leave leave more of it on the playing field and you can kind of spur them on where women really need to be sort of encouraged and built up a little bit. And maybe that would be good for men too. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my, 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 own, my own 14 year old, or now 15, I would be like, oh, he falls more into the, you know, that, female uh, 
type right. Of, yeah, like how. And it, you, maybe it's just yeah. a personality thing, but yeah. um, I've learned that there. So there, I've learned that there are different ways that you coach men and coach women. And like, I took up tennis ten years ago. I just wanted something new to learn. And I've got this. There's this awesome tennis pro where I where I learned to play. And he's just he's like Matt Wickham, and he's so encouraging. And he'll tell you the ten things that you're doing right before he'll tell you the one thing that you need to do to improve what you're doing. And it just builds you up and makes you feel like you're like, wow, I can do this. I'm not the loser. I think I am. Um, what other hurdles are there? I think that I think in cross country in endurance sports for women in general, there are still financial hurdles. Um, you know, do men, do people still perceive women being athletic as unappealing? I don't know. I like to think not. Um, so I think those are the main, I'm sure I'm forgetting something with my tired brain, but, um, and so some of the things maybe that you learned, you know, again, repeating, a lot of the spin put forward is always team, team this, team that. Uh, and although I think we all buy into that, and clearly the athletes buy into that as well, um, it's still in many ways an individual sport, you know? Right, it is. What did you... You know, what have you learned, you know, exploring the book about how actually they are individuals and they aren't so subservient to the ethos of, like, team first? Well, they, as a group, and they're a very closed group, it's like a family, and they're not going to tell you the family secrets. Um, they didn't tell me what the, what the t- team tensions were, but there was some allusion. They did allude to the year that Keegan was, um, that she took off the World Cup, because she was pregnant, um, <clears throat> there was a little bit of a void left. And without that default leader, like the person who'd been on the team the longest, the person who was getting the best results, she was automatically the team leader. So without her around, you know, we suddenly Jesse was doing really well. She was suddenly getting all those World Cup podiums consistently every weekend. Um, then, you know, there were people like Liz who'd been on the team for 10 years. And then there were, you know, newer people and, you know, there were everybody has a different role on the team. So who became the team leader? Do you need a team leader? Um, and I think without Matt, and Matt said that was the year he kind of, you know, he, he stepped back a little bit more than he said he should have. And I think what you really need to keep the team working cohesively is a constant hand on the tiller and somebody constantly making sure that you're having team meetings and grievances and um, frustrations and insecurities are aired. And people understand what's going on with their teammates. Um, I think that can can keep your your team on a on a positive track. But as soon as little insecurities start festering or jealousy start festering, then everything starts fraying at the edges. Okay. Anything else we should did ask? I'm so tired. Did I answer that correctly? You did. You did. I mean, yeah. I mean, because everyone wants to know dirt, right? It's like a little right. bit of like what. Yeah, right. Come on, it can't be all USA stars and stripes and glitter. But even if there is dirt on this team, and I'm sure there is, I mean, we've yeah. all got dirt. Yeah. They are such a closed team, and it's so part of their their team environment that they're going to protect that dirt and take it to their graves sure. because that's not who this team is. Okay, favorite moment from the last two, three weeks here in South Korea? favorite moment you have to ask well i don't know yeah i get watching that relay oh god i i, I like get choked up thinking about it yeah, you know exciting 
or not relay. Oh my gosh, watching that team sprint. I keep calling I it know, a relay. It's, in a way, it's funny because I think I had to like delete that word out of my draft. Yeah. Because it seems like a relay because they are tagging off right, to each other. Right. Yeah. Hey, Fisk, come up with a better word for to right, describe that. I'm sorry. Right. Team sprint relay. I don't know. It's confusing. And then listening, I went, Krista, Case Bryan, and I sprinted, literally sprinted. I thought I was going to cough up a lung to the medal ceremony. And listening, like watching them as they played the Star Spangled Banner, that was pretty cool. We were freezing over in the Biofon venue. Is that That was a good night in Biofon, actually. Yeah, it was a good race. I feel, I feel badly for the biathletes. They really deserve their day in the sun, too. They do. They do. And it's interesting. I mean, they were so... The, the women's relay, I mean, they were in the metal hunt up until, you know, they were in the metal hunt very late. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the guys, too. I mean, the guys had their best match, the best finish since 1972, I think. Something yeah, like that. That's so that and that circles back to that. I think we all probably know this covering the sport but that everybody is gunning for the Olympics. It's not just like the U.S. women or the guys are coming in trying to peak for this. You know, Ivo Niskanen yesterday in his press conference, he won the men's 50K. He talked about it. He essentially is focused on two races, the the 15K Classic in Lati, which he won at World Champs, Mm -hmm. and this race for two years. Right, and I think you've seen that like in the past few Olympics because I cover the Summer Games too. We've seen this almost embarrassment of riches with the U.S. winning so many medals that you almost become kind of immune to like, oh, another medal, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it became apparent here like, whoa, everybody is trying to win a medal. You know, the... No matter what country you're from, you're trying to win a medal. So seeing Belarus win the women's relay in biathlon and how excited they were but i was like okay they they I, in doing my background research bless you uh i in doing that background research i think they had you know podium podium before um but it's cool it's like it's not you know norway Great. it's not germany which had been dominant over in biathlon so well thank you for your time thank you appreciate it thank you um, it's been fun t- spending three weeks with you guys and getting to know you yeah it's good it's, it's always nice to be like okay there's a familiar face and someone who knows the sport and I have to say fasterskier.com you guys cover you are tireless in your coverage and you really helped me research this book and I put that in the, in the acknowledgements at the end how oh. important you guys and I know from being in this business that it is work that you do not get thanked for financially so just know that you helped one person in this world, at least. You know, the New York Times and the Washington Post, like all the big guys, always get kind of thanked. And they're the first ones that the athletes go to, NBC, USA Today. Sure. And it's like, no, you guys are doing the down and dirty, regular, every week coverage. And I think that needs to be acknowledged and thanked. All right. Well, thanks again. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, safe travels home. Before we end in our quest for the truth, here's the background on Matt Whitcomb's hairstyle of choice back in middle school and his early high school years. I did roll with a mullet for a large part of my high school and middle school years. Really? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a safe way to go. You never had to check your mirrors or look behind you because you were covered back there. It just felt kind of good and it was, uh, people ask why we did that. And I honestly, I don't know. I just think it's what we did. I can remember sitting down at the barber though. And they would say, what, how do you want this done? I just said, I don't really care. Just don't touch the back. 
and uh, that's how the mullet grows turns out like the back was totally precious to you yeah like, don't, yeah don't mess with it i don't want that altered in any way it's perfect <laughs> so <laughs> like through middle school through most of high school is that right yeah i'd say probably it started I, I started to experience some uh haircut pressures probably in ninth or tenth grade and the mullet started to shorten up into more of a normal haircut and then it just turned out that I have a terrible head of hair in the end. So <laughs> that, was, that was as good as it was, it was ever going to get. All right. Your hair looks fine. So, all right. So, um, and did that, I guess my follow-up question would be like, you seem like a super well-adjusted adult. Um, <laughs> so like the mullet, like, and I brought this up in my conversation with Peggy. I was a little surprised. I was like, wow. Okay. The mullet. I always, I just, I didn't peg you as a mullet guy. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I it's it's hard for me to think about that as well. Um, I was a pretty insecure middle schooler, and uh, that was like my comfort haircut. And I I don't know, perhaps as I became a little bit more secure as an eleventh and twelfth grader, uh, could kind of lighten the load back there and uh, wear something a little more vulnerable. But uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that's how it was. Wow. <laughs> no. Nothing says like non-vulnerable like a mullet. Okay. All right, it makes um, me want to. It makes I, me want to grow it out again since that's the only place on my head that actually produces good hair anymore. There's a okay. There's a slight like I don't know what they call it if it's receding from the front. I don't know. There's I just pulled up. I googled Matt Wickham U.S. Ski Team mullet <laughs> and. <laughs> There's nothing evident, but there is, in fact, a recent photo. And it might even be the one, it, it, because I just went to images, and so I guess I could visit the site. But I think it might be your official U.S. ski team photo. Oh, could be. Uh, from this year, because you have that like new white jacket yes, on. Yes, with quite a, quite a um, beard, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that is right. Okay. Yeah, you got you to gotta grow it where you have it. You know, it doesn't grow on top anymore. So. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation. 